Part three, section one, chapter four of the Origins of Christianity by Thomas Whitaker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Von Manen on the Pauline Literature. Part three, the Epistles to the Corinthians. Section one, the first epistle. Chapter four, whence came the epistle? A. Significance of the preceding investigation. As was said in the case of Romans, it is not in the abstract impossible that Paul himself should have put together a composition of the kind under the external form of a letter, but it will hardly be maintained that this is a probable hypothesis. Equally improbable is it, in spite of the interpretation put by many on Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 2, that any one else wrote this or any other epistle in Paul's name during his lifetime. Still, as in the former case, it seems desirable to examine the question again from the beginning, as if the analysis had not already in effect proved that the epistle cannot have proceeded from Paul, and that it belongs to a later time. B improbability of the tradition superficially there seems to be nothing against the accepted tradition that the apostle having founded the christian community at corinth in fifty two or fifty three a d during a residence there of about a year and a half acts chapter eighteen verses one through eight wrote a letter from ephesus to his corinthian converts about three and a half years after leaving them that is in about fifty seven or fifty eight a d yet it is in entire contradiction to the spirit of this tradition that we should have before us as the first epistle to the corinthians an authoritative document intended in great part not for a particular community but for a wider circle of readers. Can anyone find it probable that Paul, the tent-maker and travelling preacher, should in this short time, and amid all his preoccupations, have been able to lay down the lines of the Christian life so broadly and deeply, that his letters could serve as textbooks not only for the particular community to which they were addressed, but for all other Christian communities, wherever they might be. As we descend to details, the improbabilities become ever more striking. The Occasion of the Writing What is the particular inducement to write the letter? The reports of certain persons described in chapter 1, verse 11, or the rumor mentioned in chapter 5, verse 1? or the letter referred to in chapter 7, verse 1, or the arrival of the triumvirate spoken of in chapter 16, verse 17. If all of these came into account, what was the relation of the subordinate reasons to the determining one? Critics who accept the Pauline authorship can only set up discordant hypotheses. The special difficulty is raised by chapter 5, where Paul is represented as condemning on a mere report and in his absence a person whose life apparently is at stake. Chapter 5, verse 5. And this, although he expects to visit Corinth himself speedily. If, however, we look upon the epistolary form as a fiction, all becomes transparent. The vagueness of the indications, and the apparent precipitancy of the Apostle's judgment, cease to offer any difficulty. We are no longer perplexed by his writing at such length on points of discipline, at a time when he is hoping to return, and when he has just sent his pupil Timothy to repeat his instructions. At most, we see a fault in the form of a pseudepigraphon. The Relation Between Paul and the Corinthians 
how are we to reconcile the assurances of chapter one verses five through seven about the riches of the corinthians in christ with reproaches such as that of chapter three verse three that they are carnal and walk after the manner of man in one passage they are babes to be fed with milk in another the apostle sets before them the wisdom that is spoken among the perfect this alternation which runs through the epistle makes it impossible to form any determinate idea of the relation between paul as the writer and the corinthians as readers parties have arisen only one party calls itself after paul and yet he seems to take for granted that all will be willing to listen to him some are puffed up and raise themselves above the apostles from whom they have received everything if this is their state of mind how can paul expect a good result from the anything but modest sounding exhortation of chapter four verses sixteen through seventeen some think he will not return this seems strange after an absence of only three and a half years and in any case why should they fear the threat of his return with a rod as it is put almost childishly in verse twenty one there is no suggestion elsewhere in the epistle that paul's bodily presence was such as to excite this terror and compare second corinthians chapter ten verse ten why again does he insist so strongly on his right to live at the expense of the community and to marry if he chooses it does not appear that any one has contested his right and he has no intention of exercising it contrast again the tone of self-exaltation in some passages such as chapter eleven verse one where he seems to regard himself as a mediator between christ and ordinary men with the extreme modesty of others such as chapter seven verse forty where he merely claims the freedom to express his own opinion along with the rest we no more understand the attitude of the community to him than his to the community after so short a time his converts have split into parties some have lost their belief in the resurrection of the dead chapter fifteen verse twelve even those who call themselves after paul are not to be regarded as faithful disciples since they are severely chided precisely for their use of his name chapter one verses thirteen through seventeen chapter three verses four through nine and verses twenty two through twenty three all this is explicable only by assuming a wide gap between the time of paul and the composition of the epistle we now understand how it comes about that the supposed writer is no tangible figure but an image of the ideal apostle praising and blaming encouraging and setting to rights a recognized authority whose word must everywhere pass for law compare chapter seven verse seventeen with the similar expressions in chapter eleven verse thirty four and chapter sixteen verse one the glorification of paul no longer troubles us we see it as we have long seen the declarations of the johannine christ i am the bread of life the light of the world the good shepherd the question why paul on receiving the disquieting news about his spiritual children at corinth did not immediately hasten thither is as little enigmatical as the opinion of those who were puffed up that he would not come at the time when the epistle was written there could be no question of any coming again paul was no longer among the living the community according to the ordinary view the community consisted at any rate chiefly of heathen christians and indeed 
the writer often seems to be addressing himself exclusively to such for instance chapter two verse twelve contrary to the jewish custom men are to pray with uncovered heads chapter eleven verse four yet from other places a part may be inferred to have been jews at their calling and a part non-jews chapter seven verses eighteen and twenty the permission to eat what is sold in the market seems intended for jewish christians familiarity with the old testament and with the history of israel such as could not be possessed by new converts from heathenism is assumed throughout are we then to suppose that the community was mixed in that case how does it come about that in a letter directing itself to all alike for example chapter ten verse fourteen now one part exclusively seems to be addressed and now the other and in the reading of the epistle to the whole community what impression would have been made on the weak by the bitter-sweet tone in which the strong the men of knowledge are advised to have patience with them would they not have felt wounded the effect must have been quite other than that which was intended by the apostle in a book written at a later date the admonition presents no difficulty the treatise was put into no one's hands as a letter any one who was of the weak and read it may have shaken his head and sighed but he could take no offence since evidently the passages in question were not addressed to him personally parties nothing tangible can be made out of the parties referred to be they two chapter three verses four through five three chapter three verses twenty two through twenty three or four chapter one verse twelve though the attempts of critics are endless it appears that the factions had not actually broken up the community since the epistle is addressed to all its members and their meeting together is presumed yet compare the question in chapter one verse thirteen there is no suggestion of doctrinal difference between paul and apollos who are on the best of terms nor yet between paul and cephas who is cited as the principal witness for the resurrection he and paul and the rest teach the same thing chapter fifteen verse eleven no trace is to be found of a jewish christian party at the head of which stands peter nor do we learn why his party at corinth whatever it may have been chose the syrian name kephas in preference to the greek petros the true explanation is that the parties were not historical or at least were not of the place and time to which they are assigned the author himself does not treat their existence as serious he merely wishes to point a moral against parties in his own age clement of rome had a perception of this not that he had any intention of throwing doubt on the historical character of the datum when he said that paul wrote to the corinthians about himself and cephas and apollos spiritually in fact the writer himself tells us his aim as clearly as is possible in a pseudepigraphic work chapter four verse six in accordance with his catholicizing temper he tries to make it appear that party names among christians had been assumed without real grounds opponents the usual view is that the opponents of paul in this as in other epistles are jewish christians yet no sign of it appears in the epistle itself the weak brethren who are scrupulous about eating the sacrificial meat of the heathen are taken under the apostle's protection against the more advanced 
in the passage on strifes chapter one verse ten through chapter three verse twenty three he directs his reproofs not against any particular party but against the formation of parties in general that which is named after himself he blames as much as the rest if such opposition to the judaizers as we find in galatians is the test of genuineness then our first epistle to the corinthians is not genuinely pauline it is here the judaizing party that has need of toleration the opponents spoken of in chapter nine verses one through eighteen who contest paul's right to the privileges of an apostle do not present themselves as members of the christian community at corinth but as outsiders see especially chapter nine verse two unintelligible from the point of view of tradition this passage has a meaning plain enough in itself it is not a defense of the apostle's rights which he does not mean to exercise by himself before his recent converts but a vindication of those who regarded themselves as his successors against some who in a later age were refusing to admit that he had really been an apostle this fully explains the warmth of tone the only opponents distinctly in view within the community if we are to call opponents those whose line of thought is disapproved are no lagging judaizers but paulinists of the extreme left men who in the opinion of the author go too far in his own direction who arrogate to themselves too much liberty who fancy themselves superior to their teachers the existence of such opponents is simply inconceivable in a newly formed community consisting of insignificant people chapter one verses twenty six through twenty eight in the time of the actual paul c indications of a later time paul as power at the time when the epistle was written paul's career could be looked back upon as a completed whole he has planted another has watered chapter three verse six he has laid the foundation as a wise master builder another builds thereon chapter three verse ten he and his fellow apostles have been made a spectacle to the world and to angels and men chapter four verse nine in these and in other passages we are on the threshold of legend paul has fought with wild beasts at ephesus chapter fifteen verse thirty two now rescue from the amphitheatre if this adventure had been real would have been no easy matter the image of the apostle is held up as a model of life and faith in all respects he already stands so high that he can threaten with his coming chapter four verses nineteen through twenty one can make his spirit act at a distance chapter five verse three can deliver sinners to satan chapter five verse five and can bless men with his love next after the grace of jesus christ chapter sixteen verse twenty four the community no longer young with the passages insisting on the spiritually undeveloped state of the community others are in contrast where the possession of knowledge is assumed and difficult questions of conduct are discussed the community no longer consists as at first almost wholly of people who are of no account in the world since it is now necessary to lay down the rule that all slaves and free and so forth are to remain in the station in which they were called chapter seven verses twenty one through twenty four those who were formerly heathens have had time to become familiar with the contents of the old testament the community has its traditions imparted 
as appears, a long time ago, chapter 11, verses 2 and 23, chapter 15, verse 3. The custom is that it should support its spiritual leaders and their families. This right needs vindicating, not as the general rule, but as an application of the rule to those Pauline teachers whom some would exclude from its benefit. A whole series of recognized functions is performed by different persons. Chapter 12, verses 28 through 30. Submission to whom is insisted upon. Chapter 16, verse 16. There are religious services in which the members take various parts. Chapter 14, verses 6 and 26. And in which abuses have arisen that need setting in order. A regular discipline has become necessary. The distinction is known between a major and a minor excommunication. In the case of the first, chapter 5, verse 5, we can scarcely think of anything but a death sentence. The second, chapter 5, verse 9, consists in exclusion from the society of the faithful. Christianity has won for itself a place in the world so that the relations of its members to those outside have to be regulated. Chapter 6, verses 1-11 through 11. They form a new people, Israel after the Spirit. Compare with chapter 10, verse 18. Doctrinal Utterances Although in our epistle doctrinal expressions do not come into the foreground, they are numerous enough to prove that like the epistle to the Romans, it belongs to a later time than that of Paul. Christianity is no longer a Jewish sect, but an independent confession, standing over against those of Jews and Greeks. It expects justification neither from obedience to the law, nor from a conscience void of reproach. Chapter 4, verse 4. It knows no righteousness, no sanctification, no redemption, but in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 30. Nothing of this is attainable by personal effort. The Christian receives all by grace through faith. Before the imparting of faith goes the preaching of the word of the cross, of the gospel of Christ, that is, the glad tidings concerning Christ, but not in this sense that faith is dependent on men. He who proclaims the gospel does it in Christ, chapter 4, verse 15, and cannot escape the necessity imposed on him, chapter 9, verse 16. One point and another may be borrowed from tradition, chapter 11, verse 23, chapter 15, verse 3, but on the whole the system has been made known by divine revelation to those who preach and receive it as indeed continual revelations may be counted on chapter 12 verse 7 chapter 14 verses 6 and 26 the organ of these revelations is the spirit which searches all things even the depths of god chapter 2 verse 10 Believers are spiritual men, and as such can judge of spiritual things, which natural men cannot know. The Spirit of God, or the Holy Ghost, dwells in them. Chapter 3, verse 16, etc. Points of contact with Gnosticism have already come into view in the discussion on Romans. In the present world, as we saw, not God but other powers, the rulers of this world. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 8. Satan. Chapter 5, verse 5. Chapter 7, verse 5. Death. Chapter 15, verse 26. Exercise the dominion. Men in general and man's wisdom are opposed to God. Chapter 1, verse 25. Chapter 2, verse 5. The supreme God is the God of the Christians, who are the new Israel, 
in distinction from the old Israel after the flesh, and only for the sake of their deliverance is he concerned with this world. He calls to the fellowship of his son, chapter 1, verse 9, according to his good pleasure, chapter 1, verse 21, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. Ere long he will bring the rulers of the world to naught, and give the victory to his own through Christ. And not till then shall God be in the full sense, all in all. Chapter 15, verse 28. Jesus is no longer merely what he became after his death for the first disciples, the promised Messiah, who had to suffer and die so that he might be raised from the dead and taken up into heaven, whence he shall come to establish his kingdom on earth. Though called man, when set in antithesis to Adam, he is not thought of as having been a man in the ordinary sense, he is from heaven as Adam is from earth. Chapter 15, verse 47. This is the point of comparison, which is not affected by the differences of reading in the second clause. He is Christ, the Son of God, the one Lord. Chapter 8, verse 6. The Lord of glory. Chapter 2, verse 8. To the called, the power and wisdom of God. Chapter 1, verse 24. Because the rulers of this world did not know him as such, they crucified him in their ignorance, thinking him an ordinary man, Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 8. God raised him from the dead, as through him he will also raise those who have believed in the gospel. Baptized in his name, they have broken with their guilty past, separated themselves as saints from the sinful world, and are justified. These, and those that shall afterwards add themselves to them, are they for whom Christ died. Although not quite put on an equality with God, Christ is for this doctrine little less. Accordingly, the argument here, in relation to the authorship, is essentially the same as that which was founded on the doctrinal utterances in the epistle to the Romans. The Christological development is far greater than can be conceived in a contemporary of the earliest disciples, who had gone over to them from Judaism. Some Special Points Many phrases and sayings that look like common forms indicate a later time than is consistent with the genuineness of the epistle. A passage such as chapter 4 verse 17, quite incomprehensible in the mouth of the actual apostle, betrays the late writer even in its choice of words. As Paul and Timothy are there viewed in the light of traditional figures, so also are the rest of the apostles, and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, in chapter 9, verse 5. In so far as chapter 11, verses 23 through 25, and chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, indicate a formula of communion, and a closed list of appearances of the risen Lord, we are brought in contact with pieces which we cannot suppose to have existed in A.D. 57 through 58, not to speak of A.D. 52 through 53, the assumed date of Paul's teaching at Corinth. The custom of being baptized for the dead who had died unbaptized, chapter 15, verse 29, is first heard of among the adherents of Carinthos and Marcion. It is thought that the apostle cannot have known of it and not opposed it. Yet the usage is mentioned with the approval of the writer. Hence, innumerable attempts to alter the plain sense of the words, or to modify the text, from our point of view, needless. A Written Gospel To the indications of a later time belongs the use, 
which we may conjecture of a written gospel much like the synoptics and most like luke but not to be identified with any of the three in the form known to us the passage where reference is made to a command of the lord regarding the indissolubility of marriage chapter three verse ten corresponds too closely with matthew chapter nineteen verses three through nine and mark chapter ten verses two through twelve to have had its source in an independent oral tradition compare luke chapter sixteen verse eighteen the mention of eating and drinking in chapter nine verse four is only explicable if we see there an allusion to what is said in luke chapter ten verse seven the ordinance of the lord that the preachers of the gospel should live of the gospel cited in chapter nine verse fourteen recalls besides the foregoing passage of luke matthew chapter ten verses nine through ten mark chapter six verses eight through nine luke chapter nine verse three this is not to be explained however by dependence of the author of the epistle on our third gospel in its present form rather the coincidence between first corinthians chapter ten verse twenty seven and luke chapter ten verse eight which can scarcely be accidental betrays acquaintance with the epistle on the part of the author of the gospel for after what has been said in luke chapter ten verse seven the admonition of verse eight has no sense without tacit reference to the words added in the epistle chapter ten verse twenty seven the faith that can remove mountains chapter thirteen verse two makes us think involuntarily of matthew chapter seventeen verse twenty chapter twenty one verse twenty one and luke chapter seventeen verse six the last trumpet chapter fifteen verse fifty two of matthew chapter twenty four verse thirty one the passages on the institution of the lord's supper and on the tradition regarding the resurrection support the same general view the most probable conclusion is that paul and luke drew from the same written gospel book of acts a parallel conclusion is arrived at on comparison of our epistle with luke's second book the acts of the apostles agreements and differences alike favor the view that the authors of both were dependent for their historical details on an earlier book of acts namely the acts of paul signs of the use of which are visible also in the epistle to the romans thus while we cannot adduce dependence on the canonical acts as a proof of the relatively late origin of our epistle its late origin follows indirectly from the inferred relation between them for the earlier book which served as luke's principal authority for the career of paul was of course written after the death of its hero and probably not before the end of the first century as has already been seen d the nationality of the author as a christian the writer looks down equally on heathens and on jews the israel after the flesh thus his speaking of the israelites as our fathers proves nothing in relation to his own nationality he simply regards them as the spiritual ancestors of all christians he thinks as well as expresses himself in greek if he has to struggle with language that is a consequence not of using what is not his mother tongue but of having the new thoughts of christianity to express it has even been shown by g a diesmann that the new technical term en christu or en christu iesu a favorite formula with the author of the epistle is rooted in the usage not of jewish alexandrian 
but of profane greek literature in quoting or silently appropriating words from the old testament he uses the septuagint only in three cases do we find divergent readings namely in chapter three verse nineteen chapter fourteen verse twenty one and chapter fifteen verse fifty four in the first of these another translation or perhaps a citation by some apocryphal writer was followed in the second it is known from oregon that the translation used was that of aquila in the third the words as given agree with the translation of theodotion so that if this is thought not to have been within the author's reach an earlier translation followed by theodotion must be held to have existed like philo and josephus the author of the epistle read from the old testament in greek where he differs from them is in nowhere showing the least trace of acquaintance with hebrew the passage chapter fifteen verses forty two b through forty four which seems to have been borrowed from an old christian hymn was evidently composed in greek the use of the word barbarian in chapter fourteen verse eleven points to a writer who is of greek nationality the ascetic view about marriage has its predecessors among greeks and romans rather than among jews it would not have been easy for one who had been a jew not merely to concede tacitly but to urge strongly that a man should pray with his head uncovered in fact no one would ever have thought of taking the epistle for the work of a born jew if it did not purport to have been written by the apostle paul the obvious jewish background of the writing is common to it with all old christian literature if this were a proof of the writer's jewish nationality then it would follow that justin martyr was a jew though he himself tells us that his father and his grandfather were heathens e attempts at parrying difficulties the endeavors hitherto made to serve the genuineness of the epistle by concessions are not more satisfactory than they were found to be in the case of romans and commonly they have met with the sharpest rejection from those who might have been supposed their natural friends the device of conjectural criticism with its postulate of interpolations and the attempt to rediscover genuine pauline fragments put together in various editions till the form of the canonical epistle was reached equally in effect sacrifice the pauline character of the actual work moreover they remain insufficient as against the argument from the doctrinal contents to date the epistle merely a few years later as has also been proposed in the case of romans is of no advantage at all what gain can there be for example in view of such difficulties as have been set forth in placing the composition of the four principal epistles between the years sixty one and sixty two instead of between fifty five and fifty nine f arguments for genuineness as in the defence of romans so also in that of corinthians the marks of the personality of paul are appealed to the argument however is of the same circular character at its best what is urged on the defensive amounts to acceptance of an unproved dogma till the negative shall have been demonstrated g conjectural mode of origin losters of paul it is in the abstract possible that among the materials on which the redactor worked there were letters of the apostle paul and to many 
it seems more probable that such letters should have been the basis than that a whole epistle should have been invented invented so far as the contents were concerned of course the epistles were not and the plausibility of the use of genuinely pauline material is only superficial to take one or more colourless letters of paul to rome or corinth and make them the vehicle of an essentially new doctrinal system like paulinism would have been more difficult than to put forth the system under the name of someone who had not written anything and pseudepigraphic writings among jews or christians are not wont to trouble themselves about the question whether the persons to whom they were ascribed had ever written anything or not witness the books of daniel enoch adam lamech noah baruch the revelations of elijah and of abraham the testaments of the twelve patriarchs the fourth gospel in so far as it claims to be held for the work of john the disciple whom jesus loved the revelation of john new testament epistles of james and of peter gospels of thomas and of nicodemus epistles of barnabas ignatius and so many others paulinism in the sketch that has been given of the origin of paulinism much it is true remains unexplained but not all and we are only at the beginning of investigation on the lines now opened out we have at least gained thus much that paulinism does not stand incomprehensibly in the immediate neighborhood of the first disciples of jesus we can think it as a reform not of that which has scarcely seen the light but of that which has existed at least half a century and probably longer there is no gap of from sixty to eighty years between a supposed vigorous withstanding of peter by paul and the continuation of the strife by their followers instead of this break in the orderly course of things there is an intelligible process of development Quote, jesus dies on the cross his disciples are deeply cast down but ere long take courage and see in him the messiah who had to suffer and die before he could be glorified and return to establish his kingdom with that preaching they go forth to jews and heathens while they devote themselves to a humble serious life marked by religious feeling and brotherly love in the spirit of jesus whose coming as messiah they expect one of the first and certainly one of the most zealous who are active among the heathen for the preparation of his kingdom is paul although in his intercourse with non-jews less scrupulous about the maintenance of orthodox customs and freer than the others generally in his understanding of the law he yet stands fundamentally on the same lines and remains like them notwithstanding his new confession a faithful jew what we call paulinism and know best from the new testament epistles of paul arises afterwards in connection with the building christian gnosis under the influence of the greek alexandrian philosophy yet not out of the range of judaism and much less in independence of christianity already existent from fifty to seventy years as religious fellowship and confession of jesus's earliest disciples paulinism is neither more nor less than a radical reform of this early christianity but that reform is not everywhere relished it meets with bitter opposition with fierce antagonism by the side of warm approval antagonism on the part of those who although disciples of jesus 
and awaiting his coming as the messiah if they speak greek as the christ yet remain attached heart and soul to judaism its laws and precepts institutions and usages their spiritual posterity becomes presently the belated ebionites almost from its starting point paulinism has a right and a left wing by the latter its principles are one-sidedly developed pushed to the limit and devagate ere long into marcionism by the former those same principles are a little curtailed pruned modified if possible brought into harmony with wishes and inclinations dispositions and ideas of old believers who have connected themselves with the new movement or let themselves be taken in tow by it these help to form the broad stream of rising catholicism which takes up everything into itself so far as they do not like the marcionites and other gnostics incline too much to the left or like the ebionites and other judaists too strongly to the right those are the main lines the question whether in the formation of paulinism the christ or the alexandrian son of god is prior offers nothing problematical unless we feel ourselves obliged to doubt the historic existence of jesus if we are convinced that jesus really existed and that there is a historical kernel difficult as it may be to bring to light in the gospel narrative then we can answer without hesitation that it was the christ who became the son of god and that at an earlier stage it was jesus who had become the christ he became first the christ or the messiah then jesus christ or christ used as a proper name then afterwards the son of god the pre-existence assigned to the supernatural christ in the theological speculations of the paulinists does not in the least affect this historical order of christian ideas the author to return to the author of our epistle he was unquestionably a paulinist as appears from his upholding of the honor and authority of paul at the same time he was a paulinist of the right wing he sets himself especially against the extreme spiritualism of the advanced paulinists their making light of fornication out of contempt for the body on the other side the total opposition of some of them to marriage on ascetic grounds their freedom in eating of everything whereby offence is given to other christians the too great value they attach to spiritual gifts particularly to speaking with tongues their denial of the resurrection again in consequence of overdriven spiritualism he is a practical man with more care about life than doctrine doctrinal argument occupies only one chapter chapter fifteen he has an eye to the promotion of unity among believers and of order in their religious assemblies here the drift to catholicism appears as no less in his urging content with the station in which each was called chapter seven verses twelve through twenty four chapter twelve verse thirteen above all it is seen in his quietly placing side by side divergent views on the same topic we are no more entitled to regard this as due to interpolation than we are in the somewhat similar case of the fourth gospel the different utterances come to him from his different sources his guiding aim is to further on a pauline basis a practical christianity above party divisions 
it cannot be stated with certainty where he lived but most probably it was in the east in syria or asia minor rather in the neighborhood of antioch than at rome the use of the words kephas and maran atha without the translation we should expect if the work had been revised for western readers suggests this even as regards the final redaction it is not probable that he was also the writer of the epistle to the romans on whom rather he appears to be dependent relation to romans if for example we did not know romans chapter five verses twelve through twenty one we should not fully seize what underlies first corinthians chapter fifteen verses twenty one through twenty two compare also chapter fifteen verse fifty six with romans chapter seven verses eight and nine the form in which aquila and priscilla are introduced in chapter seventeen verse nineteen may well be derived from romans chapter sixteen verses three and five if this suggestion is adopted we partly understand how the writer could let all the brethren greet you from chapter sixteen verse twenty follow immediately on the salutation of aquila and priscilla with the church that is in their house compare the two passages as wholes noting in romans chapter sixteen verse four the reference to all the churches of the gentiles the coincidence between the clauses of chapter sixteen verse twenty and romans chapter sixteen verse sixteen of which the order is at the same time inverted cannot be accidental stephanas and his house are the first fruits of achaia chapter sixteen verse fifteen have their precursor in epinetus romans chapter sixteen verse five a concurrence of points of this kind seems to show that the epistle to the romans was the model its ideas are presupposed and reminiscences of its phraseology float before the author's mind determination of date this relation helps us to fix limiting dates our epistle is later than romans which as was concluded dates from about one twenty but probably not much later it plainly discloses its origin out of the same environment and the same direction of thought the external evidence as far as it goes confirms this conclusion testifying to its existence at a date which cannot be placed later than about one forty end of part three section one chapter four